Section 47 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 15, Part 2. Chapter 15, The Bitterness of Ecstasy, Part 2. College was barren, cheap, a temple, converted to the most vulgar petty commerce. Had she not gone to hear the echo of learning pulsing back to the source of the mystery? The source of the mystery. And barrenly, the professors in their gowns offered commercial commodity that could be turned to good account in the examination room. Ready-made stuff, too, and not really worth the money it was intended to fetch, which they all knew. All the time in the college now, save when she was laboring in her botany laboratory, for there the mystery still glimmered. She felt she was degrading herself in a kind of trade of sham jujaws. Angry and stiff, she went through her last term. She would rather be out again earning her own living. Even Brinsley Street and Mr. Harvey seemed real in comparison. Her violent hatred of the Ilkston School was nothing compared with the sterile degradation of college. But she was not going back to Brinsley Street either. She would take her B.A. and become a mistress in some grammar school for a time. The last year of her college career was wheeling slowly round. She could see ahead her examination and her departure. She had the ash of disillusion gritting under her teeth. Would the next move turn out the same? Always the shining doorway ahead, and then, upon approach, always the shining doorway was a gate into another ugly yard, dirty and active and dead. Always the crest of the hill gleaming ahead under heaven, and then, from the top of the hill, only another sordid valley full of amorphous, squalid activity. No matter. Every hilltop was a little different. Every valley was somehow new. Cossethe and her childhood with her father, the marsh and the little church school near the marsh, and her grandmother and her uncles, the high school at Nottingham, and Anton Skrebensky, Anton Skrebensky and the dance in the moonlight between the fires. Then, the time she could not think of without being blasted, Winifred Inger, and the months before becoming a schoolteacher. Then, the horrors of Brinsley Street, lapsing into comparative peacefulness. Maggie, and Maggie's brother, whose influence she could still feel in her veins when she conjured him up. Then college, and Dorothy Russell, who was now in France then the next move into the world again. Already it was a history. In every phase she was so different. Yet she was always Ursula Bronwyn. But what did it mean, Ursula Bronwyn? She did not know what she was. Only she was full of rejection, of refusal. Always, always she was spitting out of her mouth the ash and grit of disillusion, of falsity. She could only stiffen in rejection, in rejection. She seemed always negative in her action. That what she was, positively, was dark and unrevealed. It could not come forth. It was like a seed buried in dry ash. This world in which she lived was like a circle lighted by a lamp. This lighted area, lit up by man's completest consciousness, she thought was all the world, that here all was disclosed forever. Yet all the time, 
Within the darkness she had been aware of points of light, like the eyes of wild beasts, gleaming, penetrating, vanishing. And her soul had acknowledged in a great heave of terror only the outer darkness. This inner circle of light in which she lived and moved, wherein the trains rushed and the factories ground out their machine produce, and the plants and the animals worked by the light of science and knowledge, suddenly it seemed like the area under an arc lamp, wherein the moths and children played in the security of blinding light, not even knowing there was any darkness, because they stayed in the light. But she could see the glimmer of dark movement just out of range. She saw the eyes of the wild beast gleaming from the darkness, watching the vanity of the campfire and the sleepers. She felt the strange, foolish vanity of the camp, which said, Beyond our light and our order, there is nothing. Turning their faces always inward towards the sinking fire of illuminating consciousness, which comprised sun and stars and the creator and the system of righteousness, ignoring always the vast darkness that wheeled round about, with half-revealed shapes lurking on the edge. Yea, and no man dared even throw a firebrand into the darkness. For if he did, he was jeered to death by the others, who cried, Fool, antisocial knave, why would you disturb us with bogies? There is no darkness. We move and live and have our being within the light, and unto us is given the eternal light of knowledge. We comprise and comprehend the innermost core and issue of knowledge. Fool and knave, how dare you belittle us with the darkness? Nevertheless, the darkness wheeled round about, with gray shadow shapes of wild beasts, and also with dark shadow shapes of the angels, whom the light fenced out, as it fenced out the more familiar beasts of darkness. And some, having for a moment seen the darkness, saw it bristling with the tufts of the hyena and the wolf. And some, having given up their vanity of the light, having died in their own conceit, saw the gleam in the eyes of the wolf and the hyena that it was the flash of the sword of angels flashing at the door to come in, that the angels in the darkness were lordly and terrible and not to be denied, like the flash of fangs. It was a little while before Easter, in her last year of college, when Ursula was twenty-two years old, that she heard again from Skrebensky. He had written to her once or twice from South Africa during the first months of his service out there in the war and since had sent her a postcard every now and then, at ever longer intervals. He had become a first lieutenant, and had stayed out in Africa. She had not heard of him now for more than two years. Often, her thoughts returned to him. He seemed like the gleaming dawn, yellow, radiant, of a long, gray, ashy day. The memory of him was like the thought of the first radiant hours of morning, and here was the blank gray ashiness of later daytime. Ah, if he had only remained true to her, he might have known the sunshine, without all this toil and hurt and degradation of a spoiled day. He would have been her angel. He held the keys of the sunshine. Still, he held them. He could open to her the gates of succeeding freedom and delight. Nay, if he had remained true to her, he would have been the doorway to her, into the boundless sky of happiness and plunging, inexhaustible freedom which was the paradise of her soul. Ah, the great range he would have opened to her, the illimitable endless space for self-realization and delight forever. 
the one thing she believed in was in the love she had held for him. It remained shining and complete, a thing to hark back to. And she said to herself, when present things seemed a failure, Ah, I was fond of him. As if with him the leading flower of her life had died. Now she heard from him again. The chief effect was pain. The pleasure, the spontaneous joy was not there any longer. But her will rejoiced. Her will had fixed itself to him. And the old excitement of her dreams stirred and woke up. He was come, the man with the wondrous lips that could send the kiss wavering to the very end of all space. Was he come back to her? She did not believe. Quote, My dear Ursula, I am back in England again for a few months before going out again, this time to India. I wonder if you would still keep the memory of our times together. I have still got the little photograph of you. You must be changed since then, for it is about six years ago. I am fully six years older. I have lived through another life since I knew you at Cossethe. I wonder if you would care to see me. I shall come up to Derby next week, and I would call in Nottingham, and we might have tea together. Would you let me know? I shall look for your answer. Anton Skrebensky. Ursula had taken this letter from the rack in the hall at college and torn it open as she crossed to the woman's room. The world seemed to dissolve away from around her. She stood alone in clear air. Where could she go to be alone? She fled away upstairs and through the private way to the reference library. Seizing a book, she sat down and pondered the letter. Her heart beat. Her limbs trembled. As in a dream, she heard one gong sound in the college. Then, strangely, another. The first lecture had gone by. Hurriedly, she took one of her notebooks and began to write. Quote, Dear Anton, Yes, I still have the ring. I should be very glad to see you again. You can come here to college for me, or I will meet you somewhere in the town. Will you let me know? Your sincere friend. Unquote. Trembling, she asked the librarian, who was her friend, if he would give her an envelope. She sealed and addressed her letter, and went out, bareheaded, to post it. When it was dropped into the pillar box, the world became a very still, pale place without confines. She wandered back to college, to her pale dream, like a first wan light of dawn. Skrebinski came one afternoon the following week. Day after day, she had hurried swiftly to the letter rack on her arrival at college in the morning and during the intervals between lectures. Several times, swiftly, with secretive fingers, she had plucked his letter down from its public prominence and fled across the hall, holding it fast and hidden. She read her letters in the botany laboratory, where her corner was always reserved for her. Several letters, and then he was coming. It was Friday afternoon, he appointed. She worked over her microscope with feverish activity, able to give only half her attention, yet working closely and rapidly. She had on her slide some special stuff come up from London that day, and the professor was fussy and excited about it. At the same time, as she focused the light on her field and saw the plant animal lying shadowy in a boundless light, she was fretting over a conversation she had had a few days ago with Dr. Frankstone, who was a woman doctor of physics in the college. No, really, 
Dr. Frankstone had said. I don't see why we should attribute some special mystery to life, do you? We don't understand it as we understand electricity, even, but that doesn't warrant our saying it is something special, something different in kind and distinct from everything else in the universe. Do you think it does? May it not be that life consists in a complexity of physical and chemical activities, of the same order as the activities we already know in science? I don't see, really, why we should imagine there is a special order of life and life alone. The conversation had ended on a note of uncertainty, indefinite, wistful. But the purpose? What was the purpose? Electricity had no soul. Light and heat had no soul. Was she herself an impersonal force, or a conjunction of forces, like one of these? She looked still at the unicellular shadow that lay within the field of light, under her microscope. It was alive. She saw it move. She saw the bright mist of its ciliary activity. She saw the gleam of its nucleus as it slid across the plane of light. What then was its will? If it was a conjunction of forces, physical and chemical, what held these forces unified, and for what purpose were they unified? For what purpose were the incalculable physical and chemical activities nodalized in this shadowy moving speck under her microscope? What was the will which nodalized them and created the one thing she saw? What was its intention? To be itself? Was its purpose just mechanical and limited to itself? It intended to be itself. But what self? Suddenly in her mind the world gleamed strangely, with an intense light, like the nucleus of the creature under the microscope. Suddenly, she had passed away into an intensely gleaming light of knowledge. She could not understand what it all was. She only knew that it was not limited mechanical energy, nor mere purpose of self-preservation and self-assertion. It was a consummation, a being infinite. Self was a oneness with the infinite. To be oneself was a supreme, gleaming triumph of infinity. Ursula sat abstracted over her microscope in suspense. Her soul was busy, infinitely busy in the new world. In the new world, Skrebensky was waiting for her. He would be waiting for her. She could not go yet because her soul was engaged. Soon she would go. A stillness like passing away took hold of her. Far off down the corridors, she heard the gong booming five o'clock. She must go. Yet she sat still. The other students were pushing back their stools and putting their microscopes away. Everything broke into turmoil. She saw, through the window, students going down the steps with books under their arms, talking, all talking. A great craving to depart came upon her. She wanted also to be gone. She was in dread of the material world and in dread of her own transfiguration. She wanted to run to meet Skrebinski, the new life, the reality. Very rapidly, she wiped her slides and put them back, cleared her place at the bench, active, active, active. She wanted to run to meet Skrebinski, hasten, hasten. She did not know what she was to meet, but it would be a new beginning. She must hurry.
she flitted down the corridor on swift feet, her razor and notebooks and pencil in one hand, her pinafore over her arm. Her face was lifted and tense with eagerness. He might not be there. Issuing from the corridor, she saw him at once. She knew him at once. Yet he was so strange. He stood with the curious, self-effacing diffidence which so frightened her in well-bred young men whom she knew. He stood as if he wished to be unseen. He was very well-dressed. She would not admit to herself the chill like a sunshine of frost that came over her. This was he, the key, the nucleus to the new world. He saw her coming swiftly across the hall, a slim girl in a white flannel blouse and dark shirt, with some of the abstraction and gleam of the unknown upon her, and he started, excited. He was very nervous. Other students were loitering about the hall. She laughed with a blind, dazzled face as she gave him her hand. He, too, could not perceive her. In a moment, she was gone to get her outdoor things. Then again, as when she had been at school, they walked out into the town to tea, and they went to the same tea shop. She knew a great difference in him. The kinship was there, the old kinship, but he had belonged to a different world from hers. It was as if they had cried a state of truce between him and her, and in this truce they had met. She knew, vaguely, in the first minute, that they were enemies come together in a truce, Every movement and word of his was alien to her being. Yet she still loved the fine texture of his face, of his skin. He was rather browner, physically stronger. He was a man now. She thought his manliness made the strangeness in him. When he was only a youth, fluid, he was nearer to her. She thought a man must inevitably set into this strange separateness, cold otherness of being. He talked, but not to her. She tried to speak to him, but she could not reach him. He seemed so balanced and sure. He made such a confident presence. He was a great rider, so there was about him some of a horseman's sureness and habitual definiteness of decision, also some of the horseman's animal darkness. Yet his soul was only the more wavering, vague. He seemed made up of a set of habitual actions and decisions. The vulnerable, variable quick of the man was inaccessible. She knew nothing of it. She could only feel the dark, heavy fixity of his animal desire. This plum desire on his part had brought him to her? She was puzzled, hurt by some hopeless fixity in him, that terrified her with a cold feeling of despair. What did he want? His desires were so underground. Why did he not admit himself? What did he want? He wanted something that should be nameless. She shrank in fear. Yet she flashed with excitement. In his dark, subterranean male soul, he was kneeling before her, darkly exposing himself. She quivered. The dark flame ran over her. He was waiting at her feet. He was helpless at her mercy. She could take or reject. 
If she rejected him, something would die in him. For him, it was life or death. And yet all must be kept so dark, the consciousness must admit nothing. How long, she said, are you staying in England? I am not sure, but not later than July, I believe. Then they were both silent. He was here, in England, for six months. They had a space of six months between them. He waited. The same iron rigidity, as if the world were made of steel, possessed her again. It was no use turning with flesh and blood to this arrangement of forged metal. Quickly, her imagination adjusted itself to the situation. "'Have you an appointment in India?' she asked. "'Yes, I have just the six months' leave. "'Will you like being out there?' "'I think so. "'There's a good deal of social life and plenty going on, "'hunting, polo, and always a good horse, "'and plenty of work, any amount of work.' "'He was always sidetracking, "'always sidetracking his own soul.' She could see him so well out there, in India, one of the governing class, superimposed upon an old civilization, lord and master of a clumsier civilization than his own. It was his choice. He would become again an aristocrat, invested with authority and responsibility, having a great helpless populace beneath him. One of the ruling class, his whole being would be given over to the fulfilling and the executing of the better idea of the state. And in India, there would be real work to do. The country did need the civilization which he himself represented. It did need his roads and bridges, and the enlightenment of which he was part. He would go to India. But that was not her road. Yet she loved him, the body of him, whatever his decisions might be. He seemed to want something of her. He was waiting for her to decide of him. It had been decided in her long ago, when he had kissed her first. He was her lover, though good and evil should cease. Her will never relaxed, though her heart and soul must be imprisoned and silenced. He waited upon her, and she accepted him. For he had come back to her. End of section 47